Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, the podcast where we hear from innovators, pioneers, and thought leaders in the worlds of blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a senior editor at Forbes covering all things crypto. If you love Unchained, please give the show a positive rating or review on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help people find out about the show. Also, spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, Slack, Telegram, and wherever you discuss crypto. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. This episode is brought to you by OnRamp. Your branding and website are the first things your users will see. And in the current Wild West of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. The topic of today's episode is taxes and crypto, and my guests today are tax attorney Tyson Cross of Cross Law Group and CPA Jason Tyra of Jason M. Tyra CPA PLLC. Welcome, Tyson and Jason. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Laura. So one disclaimer before we dive in, while we hope the show is informative for everyone, this is not meant to be financial advice and anyone who has any crypto holdings should seek their own personalized tax advice. So Jason, let's start with you. I think taxes are fairly stressful for people in general. And when you throw in crypto and its complexities, their heads just start to spin. So let's start with the broadest question possible. Um, but for the purposes of today's discussion, we'll, we'll mostly stick with U.S. tax regulation. What is the overarching principle that helps explain how the government is taxing crypto transactions? So the IRS refers to cryptocurrencies using the term virtual currency. And the substantive guidance provided by the IRS uh, was back in 2014 with notice 2014-21, uh, which specified that virtual currencies would be treated as property uh, for tax purposes. Uh, for most users, what that means is that they'll be treated as capital assets, which makes them substantially similar to either stocks or bonds uh, for most transactions. So uh, you have a, a purchase, uh, a holding period, uh, a disposal, and then a gain or loss uh, on on the transaction, depending on what your basis was uh, and and what the disposal value was. Okay, and just because you know you're use, you're using some terminology there, basically, like what people would need to know is what price they bought it at, how long they held it for, and then whether or not they made money or lost money on uh, during that time period. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. It's almost exactly the same as a stock transaction. So uh, for users that are familiar with the reporting requirements for those, uh, they're substantially similar. And Tyson, what would you say is the overarching principle that you maybe uh, the way that you think about how the government is taxing crypto transactions? Jason described it pretty accurately. I guess the one thing I would add, and, and because of the determination by the IRS that virtual currency is property, that means that every single exchange of virtual currency is a, is a taxable event. So if you use virtual currency to buy a cup of coffee, that is qualified as a taxable event. If you exchange 
uh, one type of virtual currency for another, that is also a taxable event. It's not just transactions where virtual currency is sold for fiat. And so there's another reason why crypto and taxes have been in the news. Some of the listeners may have heard about the Coinbase summons. It actually was the subject of a podcast last winter, roughly a year ago. People should go back and listen to that if they're interested in this topic. Um, why don't you guys describe what happened there and why this case is relevant to listeners? Uh, sure. So essentially what happened was an IRS office uh, issued a summons to Coinbase uh, seeking all customer records of uh, Coinbase's uh, U.S. customers, I should clarify. Um, it was extremely broad summons. It wanted all information uh, that Coinbase had essentially on their customers, including things as mundane as chat support logs. There was quite a big dispute about that. Several parties in, attempted to intervene. Coinbase ultimately also disputed or challenged the summons. And uh, that ultimately concluded in a court ruling back in uh, late November that more or less granted Coinbase's summon, uh, the summons against Coinbase by the IRS, although with some modification, the most important one being that Coinbase only has to provide records of customers who had more than $20,000 of transactions uh, of, of any type, such as a sale, uh, deposit, or withdrawal. So any users who whose dollar value of transactions of those types uh, exceeded $20,000, uh, Coinbase will be providing those records uh, to the IRS. And why do you think the IRS wanted just that level of detail what what was the impetus behind their summons uh frankly it was a fishing expedition uh the irs is concerned that that people are using cryptocurrency for tax evasion um or at the very least have taxable income that they're not reporting from cryptocurrency and the irs pointed to uh essentially one example, although there's kind of in other parties involved, of someone they did more or less catch um, committing tax evasion using virtual currency. And that was the basis for them seeking all records of all U.S. customers uh, from Coinbase. So they are trying to, to look at uh, cryptocurrency users and identify people who are evading taxes, although I think a lot of people in the legal community would agree uh, that it was an overbroad and essentially a fishing expedition. I'd, I'd like to add a little something to that if I can. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, so part of the IRS summons uh, was a note that uh, for 2015, something like uh, like less than 100 returns were filed uh, that declared virtual currency activity. And uh, to, to kind of extend the narrative of the uh, fishing expedition, my, my firm by ourselves filed more returns for that year with virtual currency activity. So I'm not sure where the IRS got that number. Uh, and, and we can't be the only ones, but we just, I mean, just my firm filed more returns than that. Oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I would I'd add to that. So did my firm. So I think, you know, you have two people on the on the line right now that may have exceeded that number. The IRS reported as being the, the tax returns that were filed. Huh. I wish I had known that back when uh, we were writing articles about this before the case was settled, because that's kind of interesting that their justification wasn't even based in fact. Um, but I wanted to just 
uh, kind of define this term fishing expedition, are you basically saying they didn't have any evidence of wrongdoing of any particular people, but just wanted to like get as much information as possible and then, and then find those people? Is that what that means? Right. So a fishing expedition, essentially the idea is they cast a broad net and they catch everything. And maybe they're looking for the bad fish, but with a broad net like that, you catch the good ones too. And the concern with that is that U.S. people have rights under the Fourth Amendment to prevent intrusions of their privacy like that. And so typically the government is required to show that it has uh, you know, reasonable basis uh, for seeking that kind of information and a belief that criminal activity is occurring. And having one or two or three maybe small examples of it doesn't seem like it's enough to justify obtaining the private information of millions potentially of uh, U.S.-based customers. And then how do they determine tax evasion versus ignorance? Or or is it the same thing in the eyes of, of, the, of the tax man? <laughs> There's not really a meaningful difference uh, from an enforcement perspective. Uh, the vast majority of cases where... Uh, uh, there's underreporting of income or underreporting of tax don't necessarily go to the criminal stage. Um, so, that, I mean, that's where you would have tax evasion. That that would be a criminal uh, issue. Uh, so, so there's not a meaningful difference if they're just looking to collect revenue. Uh, and most cases don't go to a criminal phase anyway. Okay, so let's go back to what Tyson talked about about how these tax regulations apply in so many different instances of types of transactions. It sounds like it applies if you use Bitcoin to pay for a lamp on overstock, as well as if you are a day trader trading in, um, you know, even kind of lesser known, more like penny stock type coins, or, you know, if you're an employer who's decided to pay your um, employees in ether. So like, what are some other examples of different ways in which you might use cryptocurrency where you would have to be thinking about it as if you were selling or purchasing stock? Uh, well, the, the payroll in ether example is a good one because one thing that a lot of our clients overlook is the requirement to, uh, accrue and remit payroll taxes on those payments. So, uh, that has to be done in just the same way as if you were paying in cash, um, we have clients that are high speed trading. We have clients that are, um, using, uh, virtual currencies as a, a means of remittance overseas. The thing is, uh, virtual currencies are fungible in a way that, that stocks are not. There's a lot of things you can do with them. Um, especially with ether now, uh, with, uh, the ability to write and, uh, and carry out smart contracts. You really can't do that with securities. Uh, so there, there's just a lot more uh, things going on uh, that could generate uh, tax consequences than with just a, a, a generic share of stock. And so earlier when you were saying that people would need to record their cost basis, like the price they bought something at, let's say that I've been buying, uh, just for simplicity's sake, let's just say it's Bitcoin over a period of time. You know, obviously, because Bitcoins are fungible, I don't know, like, what price would I count my, like, and let's say I had a gain by the time I sold some or spent some or whatever. How would I calculate that? Like, what's the price from which I should count my gain? Is it the most recent, most recently purchased Bitcoin or the oldest Bitcoin I have? Or like, how does that work? This is actually something that a lot of our clients struggle with. And uh, the good news is that the exchanges keep records that are pretty much what you need from a taxation perspective. 
uh, for you. Uh, so, so the answer is your, your basis is whatever you paid. And the IRS doesn't specify how you have to match buys with sells as long as they're the same amount. So uh, first in, first out works. Last in, first out works. Uh, if you want to go through and cherry pick and, and do the matching by hand that way, that would work also. Uh, it'd be extremely time consuming, but you could do it. So, so yeah, I mean, th- there's, there's not a lot of guidance uh, provided by the IRS in, in this area specifically. And so last in, first out is like using your most recently purchased crypto and then first in, first out is using your oldest. But is there one that you generally recommend for people or re- does it depend on their own personal circumstances? We generally recommend first in, first out. And the reason is we have uh, habitual relationships with clients that we've been working with for uh, a number of years. And first in, first out is the easiest way in the same data set to ensure that you don't mark the same lot of coins as uh, disposed more than one time. However, uh, we've, we admit that, that, that this year has been extraordinary. And so that will not always result in the lowest uh, possible tax outcome. Um, in a falling rate environment, it would. In a, in a, a rising rate environment, it, it would not. And this is definitely a rising rate environment. Yeah, and I would um, also tend to agree. We we also default to first in, first out for clients. The the issue here, this is just one of many problems, or or I should say, the finer details of cryptocurrency taxation that the IRS has failed to provide guidance for uh, to U.S. taxpayers. And so, uh, people are struggling with determining something as simple as you know which method you use for calculating your cost basis and. FIFO is, I tell clients, probably the safest option because it is the most widely accepted or used in other types of property. And so if you really want to make sure that you have no potential issues down the road, uh, you know, with the IRS or, or them de- declaring that some other method you used is, is not a reasonable method for cryptocurrency, then FIFO would be the safest option. And the problem with that and is that taxpayers right now, because there's no IRS guidance, they're forced to choose. Do you adopt a method that is safest and thereby normally or can result in you paying more taxes? Or do you adopt a method that's better for you from a tax standpoint, but potentially may expose you to some dispute with the IRS down the road? And that's a very unfortunate position for taxpayers to be in. And I think the IRS really needs to make an effort to clarify some of these things so that people don't have to to decide between those two non-preferable options. And do you think that the IRS will eventually provide guidance on that? Or do you think that that's something that they've purposely left up to individuals? You know, it's hard to say. They um, are very understaffed, uh, under budget at the IRS. They're busy. And frankly, cryptocurrency is is not a very large segment of the population right now. And so I think their resources are probably better applied elsewhere. Um, with that said, it seems like they should at least make some effort. It, like Jason pointed out earlier, the last time they provided notice was in 2014. 
And if they, uh, you know, so it's been four years now. So I think it's time for some of these issues to be clarified. Hopefully they provide that guidance sooner than later. Uh, it, it may cause more issues if they do it at the end of March, like they did last time, uh, right before the filing deadline. People may have already filed, but in general, and they've been criticized by, for not providing guidance already by the taxpayer advocate and, um, and other agencies. So I think it, it is probably time for them to make that effort. And if they do clarify things, will that be something that needs to apply retroactively or will it just apply going forward? Uh, well, the problem is that it, it can apply retroactively. They're not creating new law. They're just clarifying their interpretation of how the law, existing law applies to uh, cryptocurrency. So it is, in fact, actually possible for it to apply retroactively. Uh, but we would hope that in this situation, since there's been so much uncertainty about many of these issues, that the IRS takes a stance, uh, you know, with more of a forward-looking approach instead of making taxpayers uh, agonize over whether they need to go back and amend previous tax returns that aren't consistent with the, the guidance that the IRS ultimately provides. Wow. And if you're saying that the IRS is understaffed, then maybe they will also think that that's a good idea because then they don't have to deal with all those amended returns. Um well, so I wanted to ask about something else, which was um, earlier you mentioned what information the exchanges give to you. So what exactly do they make available to their customers? And does it depend on where the exchange is based? Like, for instance, you know, if I use Coinbase and let's say Binance, do I get different information from the two of them? Yeah, I mean, that's a problem right now in this space is that um, there's no standardized form of reporting. So Certainly, exchanges are free to report different information. Generally, they all make the basics available to you as far as buys and sells and deposits and withdraws. I've seen issues, and, and maybe Jason would agree, with some of the ways that margin uh, trades are reported or short sales are reported that can make it difficult uh, when you go in tax time to calculate someone's capital gains. So, yeah, What are be... the complexities there? How is, how is that different from what you've already described? Well, the issue is in the way that those types of trades are settled at the exchange. Some of these exchanges will place those trades, a margin trade or a short sale, for instance. Uh, it shows up in your report just like any other trade, although when they actually, uh, when it's done on the platform, they um, essentially just uh, settle it out against your position. So they'll just pay you the profit you make or, or take away the, the loss you have from your uh, holdings there on the site. And so you do end up with sort of this inconsistency in the way that it's treated at the exchange versus uh, mechanically how it's actually reported to the user. Yeah, I, I would add to that. This, this is a real challenge for us uh, because each exchange keeps records their, their own way. And, and some records or excuse me, some exchanges don't keep records in a way that's easily accessible to uh, to users, especially the exchanges that are outside the United States. So um, it could be something as simple as uh, terminology where a sale is referred to as a sell or a sale uh, it, or it can be something as dramatic as what Tyson just pointed out. Um, there's no unified reporting regime. Uh, I really thought that there would be a, a 1099B requirement. Uh, uh, and you know, forthcoming, um, it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, so we're just kind of left with, uh, what the exchanges decide to do for us. Yeah. You know, I was wondering about that 1099B thing, because that was something that Brian Armstrong proposed, uh, when Coinbase was, um, you know, in its legal battle with the IRS. And 
I mean, as far as I know, they didn't take him up on the offer, uh, which was surprising because it just seems like a pretty common sense solution here. Do you have a sense of why that was? I just don't think that the IRS can create a new requirement. Like, I mean, I don't think that's something they can just do uh, as a deal with with one uh, particular constituency. I mean, Tyson would probably be a better one to, to answer this than than me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, procedurally, the IRS can't impose, uh, you know, that kind of 1099 filing requirement um, uh, just unilaterally in a negotiation with Coinbase. Ultimately, it, it's going to get there. Uh, 1099s will become a requirement for U.S.-based exchanges. I'm sure it's just a matter of time. So wait, does that mean that like it's a different agency that would impose that requirement and not the IRS? No, uh, you know, the, the requirement for 1099... Um, I think it just wouldn't be appropriate to make that determination as being a, a settlement, you know, negotiation deal with Coinbase. You know, right. And I'm, I'm not for, saying that they would do that just for that one case, but that they might take that suggestion and say, oh, hey, this is a smart idea as an agency. Like we should, you know, issue, I don't know, you know, some new regulation or something to make this a requirement across all crypto exchanges or, you know, I don't I don't know how that would work exactly with something like that. Yeah, you know, and that's a good question. I'm not exactly positive. We'd have to check the statute. Generally, uh, statutes on tax matters uh, prescribe the general outline and then allow the secretary um, uh, to basically make decisions based on how that's going to happen and, and, and the details of, of what those requirements look like. And so from that standpoint, it is possible that it could just come out of the IRS, you know, deciding that a 1099B is a requirement that uh, virtual currency exchanges have to comply with. One problem, though, is that virtual currency is fungible, and so and it's very easily transferable. And so, unlike shares of stock that you buy and sell typically on a single brokerage, you can move these around, and that makes the information that the particular exchanges can report on 1099B uh, less than useful because they don't have your cost basis information. All they can do is report perhaps your sales, um, but they don't know which how much you paid for that coin. If you bought Bitcoin on Coinbase, for instance, and transferred it to Bitrix and sold it at Bitrix, a 1099B from Bitrix may only report the sale and it may actually make things more complicated for taxpayers to accurately calculate their income since those 1099Bs wouldn't be very accurate. Um, so then what are you recommending to your clients? Are, are you having them kind of like create their own spreadsheets or something to track all this themselves? Yeah, and, and Coinbase is actually confusing a lot of users, um, or at least of my clients, Jason, maybe yours too, uh, because they're providing a tax report now uh, where you can calculate your taxes. But they just treat, if you deposit a coin to Coinbase, they use the cost, the market price of the coin on that day as your cost basis. And if you produce oh your tax report, it's going to be completely erroneous. And I think, I think taxpayers are actually going to rely on that report, not fully realizing that it's completely incorrect. Yikes. That seems like something you, you should tweet at them and say, Hey, guys, you're doing this wrong. People are going to, you're going to get the IRS to come after you again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're, they're trying to help. I mean, they really are. They're, they're trying to uh, prevent unwelcome regulation. Coinbase is not a tax preparation platform, and and I think most people realize that the 1099B issue, you know, to to add on to what uh, Tyson said before, could actually be uh, prejudicial to taxpayers uh, because the IRS uses 1099 uh, information 
uh, as as a standard of reporting for income. So if you have uh, coins that you liquidated for fifty thousand dollars during a year with no basis reported, the IRS is going to automatically assume fifty thousand dollars in profit. Uh, and anyone who's ever gotten a CP two thousand notice, which is a uh, it's a mismatch between reported income and declared income notice. Uh, knows that it, you know, the IRS doesn't always get the whole picture. So I think that the, the Coinbase is, is just trying to do their best, uh, to keep the IRS out of their business. Um, and, uh, that's what their best looks like right now, unfortunately. So just going back, if I have bought my Bitcoin somewhere else, but I move them to Coinbase in order to sell them you know, back into fiat, into my bank account, then it's upon me, it sounds like, to make sure that I know what my cost basis was so as not to have to pay, you know, in this example of the 50,000, not have to pay taxes on the full 50,000. Like, let's say, let's say I spent 20,000, you know, and then took out 50,000. It would be, the onus would be on me to, to log that I paid 20,000. Is that correct? Yes. And, and then it's also on you to report that at tax time. Okay. And the other thing I was wondering about is, so a service like Coinbase, they charge 1.49% for uh, transactions where you convert back to fiat. And then also, actually also when you buy. So do you pay taxes on the fee or what happens with the fee? No, that uh, that either becomes part of your basis or it's deducted from your uh, the proceeds of the transaction. So it's it's essentially a deduction from uh, from your gains. And then does that does the same thing apply if I'm transacting on the Bitcoin blockchain and let's say I pay a forty dollar fee? What happens with with that fee? How do I treat that tax wise? It, it would be the same. It's deductible. Okay. And then for the hodlers out there, uh, do they pay any taxes? You know, and if so, how much? And what information do they need to record? Uh, holders, no. There, there is no tax consequence unless you actually engage in a, tra- a taxable transaction. So that would be an exchange of goods, services, uh, other property, or money. So if you're holding, there is no tax on the appreciation that's occurred in, in those holdings. And I'll point out, that's another area where I see confusion among clients is that on Coinbase, if you withdraw your coins and transfer them to a new exchange on that tax report that Coinbase provides you, it treats that as a taxable sale. Um, and so clients who see that are confused. And so we can clarify that the act of withdrawing uh, virtual currency from the exchange and moving it to a, a paper wallet or to another exchange is not a taxable event. And then if you're shifting coins that you bought, let's say on the retail side of Coinbase over to GDAX, the institutional trading platform or professional trading platform, is there any taxable event at that moment or no? No, the transfer of, of cryptocurrency from wallet address to wallet address, as long as you know, you're still the owner is not a taxable event. Okay. And, and then actually to go back to my question about the hodlers, when they buy, that's not a taxable event either, right? As long as they buy with fiat, if they use Bitcoin to buy an altcoin, that would be a taxable event. It's treated as if they sold the Bitcoin for cash and bought the altcoin. So they, they may have a taxable event there on the Bitcoin side of that transaction. Okay, so let's talk more about crypto to crypto trades. Are those ever treated as like-kind exchanges? And can you also just define this term, like-kind exchange? 
Sure. So this is probably the most common question I get right now. Um, under Section 1031, an exchange of property um, that is of like kind uh, does not cause the recognition of gain or loss. And so the question is, uh, does cryptocurrency uh, qualify as like-kind property? And the problem really is that cryptocurrency is a new asset class. Um, we know it's property. The IRS clarified that in, in the notice they issued in 2014. So it is at least technically eligible for like-kind status under Section 1031. But that's not really enough. You have to look at the nature and character of the property itself. And it takes a pretty in-depth analysis to determine whether the property involved is in fact like-kind. And we don't have any direct authority on point there. We have cases and regulations and, and IRS rulings interpreting the nature and character test for other types of property. And so we can try to analogize cryptocurrency to these other types of property, but it just doesn't fit very well because it's this is a new asset class and it just tends to not fit very well within the existing legal framework. So I tell clients or people who at least consult with me about this like-kind issue, it is possible for cryptocurrency to be like-kind. And it's certainly not, let's call it illegal, to report it that way on your tax return. But the issue is that because there's no direct authority, the IRS is effectively free to disagree and reach a different conclusion and reject the use of like-kind. If they do that, uh, you as the taxpayer would have to either fight that out and possibly go to tax court or, or even higher courts to resolve the issue, or simply pay the tax that they've assessed against you, plus interest, and then potentially penalties. And the penalties are going to apply if, if you don't have a uh, reasonable uh, or, or adequate, I'm sorry, uh, legal authority for arguing that cryptocurrency is, is like-kind property. And so that's really what the issue comes down to is, is there sufficient authority to treat it that way? And if not, then you'd be facing penalties if you report it that way on your tax return. And didn't the recent tax bill also restrict that to only real estate or, or something like that? Right. So the new uh, tax bill amended Section 1031 and essentially makes like-kind exchanges going forward only applicable to exchanges of real estate. Okay. But it leaves open the question of what happened to like-kind exchanges in crypto before this new tax bill. Is that what you're saying? Right. So it is technically still on the table for previous years. And you know, it's anyone's guess on how the IRS is going to play this one. Uh, Based on the number of people asking me if they can file like-kind exchange for previous uh, years on cryptocurrency, I think there'll probably be quite a few people doing it that way. And the most important thing, though, is that they have to remember, just because it's not taxable, it doesn't mean you, you get to skip reporting it on your tax return. Like-kind exchanges still are reported on the tax return using Form 8824. So if, if you think that like-kind exchange treatment is sort of an easy way out of the reporting requirements and the difficulty of, of accurately uh, tracking your crypto trades, it's not. Uh, those still need to be calculated and reported on your tax return. 
Oh, wow. For people who do a lot of that, that sounds like a total headache. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to talk about taxes on hard forks, airdrops, mining, lost coins, and uh, for ICO issuers. But first, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about our fabulous sponsor, OnRamp. If you're starting up a new project or need some design or branding help on an existing one, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp is a full-service creative agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. OnRamp has a passion for assisting brands and boosting business results and can help with everything from website and logo design to social and content strategy. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with tax attorney Tyson Cross and CPA Jason Tyra about taxation of crypto. So let's talk about hard forked coins. How will people be taxed on those? Like, for instance, uh, you know, if I held Bitcoin on August 1st, let's say I had five Bitcoins and then I therefore received five Bitcoin cash. How will I be taxed for these new Bitcoin cash that I now hold? That That's a really interesting uh, area. Because there's not a direct analog in the tax code for a, a hard fork. Uh, that where you would typically see a property split under normal circumstances would be like a stock split where you have a two for one and the two shares of stock each have half the value of the one that you had before. Uh, or a property split incident to a divorce where you have, say, a piece of property uh, that's divided in half, but you don't end up with more property than you started with. Uh, with a, a hard fork in the, the virtual currency land, um, you end up with something that's new that didn't take anything from, uh, from where it came from, if you will. So uh, we're uh, suggesting to clients that they treat it as a capital asset with a basis of zero. Uh, and, and then that would start their holding period and they either have a long or short term capital gain, uh, depending on how long they held the asset. Oh, interesting. You recommend they start from zero. Well, what if they had bought their Bitcoins and were holding them on a centralized service like Zappo or Coinbase, which did not make the Bitcoin cash available until months after it had been released? Then do you still recommend that they use zero as their cost basis? Yeah, we do. And, and the reason is Bitcoin didn't give anything up. Bitcoin did not lose any value uh, or, or have any fundamental change uh, at the time of the fork. So the, the zero cost basis uh, makes even more sense in the, uh, in the scenario you just gave because the, the point at which uh, the client had an unrestricted right to the coin uh, was different from when the coin actually forked. So as long as you assume a, a zero uh, basis, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no harm to the client. Okay. And would the same reasoning apply to something like airdropped coins where again, you know, holders on a certain, on, a, on an existing blockchain will suddenly receive new coins? Uh, that I think is less clear. And, and Tyson may disagree with me on this. I think an airdrop is different from a fork in that uh, you kind of have to do something for the most part to participate in an airdrop. Uh, so I would say that those coins usually would be considered ordinary income at the time received, uh, and that would establish their basis, and then you would have a capital gain or loss from there. But I, I would want to make that determination uh, based on the circumstances of each individual uh, airdrop event as opposed to on, on a blanket uh, basis. Okay. And when you say that, you mean that you would pay taxes simply upon receipt of the coins because they're income? That's correct. Okay. 
Yeah, and you know, if I can add, Laura, I think this is a great example of where we need better guidance from the IRS because the like Jason said, there there's no analogy for this in the tax code. It's just a completely new concept of the hard fork. And I've written previously on this and um you know, uh, basically, I, the thoughts I've shared really are more of a strict interpretation of the code. I think if you look really closely and take a very conservative interpretation, both the hard fork and an airdrop are taxable events at the time of the hard fork. But there's a there's serious issues with that viewpoint, and both practically and administratively from the IRS's perspective, it's essentially unworkable. I think because, frankly, people don't know about hard forks. Now, something as high profile maybe as the Bitcoin Cash certainly a lot did, but I, I'm ass- I assure you there are some people who had no idea. And so requiring them to you know, recognize income they didn't even know about certainly becomes an issue. And the problem here is that we're back to that situation where taxpayers have a difficult decision to make as far as do they pay more tax to be safe or do they take a more reasonable approach but risk some kind of issue with the IRS down the road. And I have clients who are very early adopters and, and have very large uh, Bitcoin holdings. And so for your average person, the Bitcoin cash fork maybe was several hundred or maybe a few thousand dollars of potential income, depending on how you treat it. But if you're a very large uh, early adopter of Bitcoin, I have one client in particular who was about $6 million of income potentially from the Bitcoin cash hard fork. So do they treat that as taxable income at the time of the fork or do they wait and take the, what I think is probably a more reasonable approach and use a zero cost basis like Jason was recommending? The issue there is that the, if the IRS thinks that they, it was taxable at the time of the hard fork, they underreported by $6 million and that carries significant consequences with it. And so those taxpayers are, are put in a very difficult position of deciding the correct way to treat it. So we do need guidance on that point, but I, I would just wrap that thought up by saying I tend to recommend the same way that Jason does as far as just using a zero cost basis um, and, and recognizing that game when the, when the new crypto is disposed of. Yeah, well, I think it would be difficult with the Bitcoin Cash to to figure out what the income was, right? Because it took kind of a while to figure out a price even. And then I don't know if that price was consistent across different exchanges. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Like, I feel like there was a lot of confusion initially. Yeah, and that's one of many, you know... uh check marks on the box that say that it's not administratively possible to treat the hard fork as a taxable event at the time it occurs. And valuation is a good example of one of those problems with that approach. Also, that would be a terrible outcome for the taxpayer. Let's let's take that same hypothetical uh, uh, client with the $6 million in gain. He reports $6 million in ordinary income in year one. And then let's say on the first day of year two, that Bitcoin cash had gone to zero. So now he has a $6 million capital loss, which he can't necessarily deduct against his $6 million in income. Mm -hmm. And because capital losses are limited to $3,000 per year, how long is that going to take to write off? Right. So let's talk about another instance in which uh, we sort of have new a new coin uh, being created out of the ether, which is what happens with an initial coin offering. If I am issuing the new coin, then how am I taxed on that? You know, that that one's a very interesting question, uh, at least a, a one that maybe people tend to overlook. And it's sort of ironic because you do have uh, projects that are conducting an ICO. And on one hand, they don't want to be a security because they do want to stay out of any sort of trouble with the SEC. 
But on the other hand, uh, if they're not a security, they certainly are then selling a utility token is typically the nomenclature that's used for that. And basically, they're selling a product or a service. And um, either way, um, you know, under the Internal Revenue Code, there's a specific carve out for uh, money raised through selling shares of stock or membership interest in a partnership. Um, that is why normal IPOs are tax free. Those provisions, by their very uh, language used, would not apply to cryptocurrency being sold in an ICO. So um, I'd be curious to hear what Jason thinks, but I, I think that it's taxable income to the to the sellers of the token. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, we work with a lot of companies that have put together ICOs, and uh, there's really only two ways you can go. It's either a security or, or it's a product, essentially. And um, what we tell clients is that if you have not registered with the SEC, then you've, you've, you've kind of made your bed in, in that respect. And, you know, you are going to have to pay tax on revenue. Okay. And what if I mine crypto? How am I taxed then? Uh, ordinary. It's just ordinary income. Okay. And same if I'm paid in crypto, it's ordinary income. Uh, what if I uh, gift my crypto to somebody? Do I pay taxes on that? Uh, in that circumstance, the gift tax rules would apply. Uh, so there is a tax. There is a tax-free gift limit. Uh, it's fourteen thousand uh, dollars per person per year, uh, and under that limit, you don't even have to report. So let's say you had uh, one Bitcoin, uh, which is uh, let's say it's worth exactly fourteen thousand um, dollars, but it has a basis in your hands of ten. Uh, if you gift that to somebody. It just it's just it just leaves your hands tax free, and then the recipient takes a carryover basis from you. Um, if you go beyond, the so you tax-free, need to tell them what you paid. Yes, you do. Once you go beyond the the tax free gift limit, you start to eat into your uh, lifetime. Uh, it's it's like the estate exemption limit, and I don't know what it is off the cuff. It's in the millions of dollars. Um, but that at that point, you would be required to file a gift tax return, but you probably still wouldn't owe any gift tax unless you had gone through your uh, your lifetime tax-free uh, gift limit. Yeah, that limit just got raised to $11 million if you're single, $22 million if you're married uh, with the new tax bill. So long story short, most people don't need to worry about the tax consequences of gifting crypto. Although, as Jason pointed out, if it's over 14000 you are required to file a gift tax return just so the IRS can track how much of that lifetime exemption you've used up. And what if I've lost my crypto, meaning what if I've lost my private keys, like maybe I was hacked or I threw out the hard drive they were on? Can I deduct those losses? And if so, what amount do I deduct? Is it the amount on December 31st or the amount from the time I lost them? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, okay, so a, 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 I don't know, Tyson, a, a thrown away hard drive, If do you have? Is, is that a, a theft or casualty loss if you destroy your own property? <laughs> you know, that's interesting. Uh, the, the, there's a lot of different fact patterns that can come up in this context um, for whether a, a loss is a casualty loss or a theft loss. And running to clients all the time, you have different examples of things happening. You know, the exchange closed down or they were hacked. And tragic it's interesting. Accident. Yeah, tra- tragic boating accident. Um, 
you know, the, unfortunately, the first rule, I mean, assuming you qualify for a theft or loss deduction, that'll have to be uh, determined with your tax advisor, I think, to make sure. But the loss is based on what you paid for the coin. So right off the bat, most people aren't too happy, frankly, about that outcome. Um, there's also phase outs on, on when you can even deduct the, the casualty loss uh, on the tax return. And I'll just add, finally, the casualty losses were one of those things that got thrown on the chopping block in the new tax bill. So actually going forward, uh, there's not a mechanism to deduct lost coins anymore, whether they were stolen, hacked, or a result of a crashed hard drive. Oh my gosh. That's well, so I'm I'm floored by the fact that you said that the amount that you deduct is what you paid, because obviously, <laughs> for people who have seen huge crypto gains, I'm sure they they don't like that. But then, knowing that going forward, you can't even deduct any of these losses, especially and does that even apply if you've lost crypto on an exchange? As we know, the history of crypto is riddled with exchange hacks. Well, it depends on the fact pattern. So a capital loss is different than a theft or a casualty loss. A theft or casualty loss uh, under pre-2018 law was uh, an itemized deduction. A capital loss is taken on a different part of the return. So uh, you may have a case that you, you know to, to make that you have a capital loss in an exchange failure as opposed to a, a casualty or a theft. Yeah, and that's um, there's actually a really interesting wrinkle here in the law that um, is maybe worth exploring more now that the casualty loss deduction is gone. And and that's when you can abandon property and take a capital loss for the abandonment. And it's something I haven't honestly haven't looked into too closely yet, but it's been on my list of things to do for clients who are in this situation because you can actually abandon property and take a capital loss. So how do you abandon crypto that's on an exchange that folded? I mean, there's a lot of mechanics there that become difficult to navigate, but it's at least maybe a potential option down the road worth exploring for, for clients who lose funds on these exchanges and, and are sort of desperate to get some kind of benefit out of that for tax purposes, at least. Wow. Okay. And let's talk also about wash sales. Can you define what that is and describe how the IRS treats wash sales of crypto assets? Sure. The, the short answer is that wash sale rules do not apply to virtual currencies. And uh, to kind of expand on what the wash sale rules say, you cannot purchase a uh, an asset that is the same as or substantially similar to one that you have disposed uh, plus or minus 30 days. If you look at the wash sale rules, they specifically apply to securities. And notice 2014-21 does not lump virtual currencies in with securities. Uh, securities have some uh, specific attributes that are not shared uh, by virtual currencies, one of which is that you have a counterparty with a security. You really don't with uh, virtual currency. Um, a security guarantees you uh, some sort of uh, rights or privileges uh, or, or has obligations associated with it. Not so with virtual currencies. So at least in my opinion, virtual currencies are, are, are not even similar to securities. Uh, so I, I think they're unlikely to fall uh, under the wash sale rules. And so just taking that in conjunction with what we were saying before about how like-kind exchanges, or sorry, crypto to crypto trades are not like-kind exchanges, does that mean if I sell my, I guess, like, let's say I sell my XRP at a loss, 
but or not and not sell but trade it for let's say ether which then goes up then i can have both a loss that i can deduct as well as but then later i have the capital gain Yes. I mean, in that situation, those are separate transactions. Assuming you don't treat them as like kind, if you treat them as like kind, there would be no gain or loss on the transaction. Um, so what Jason's saying, and I agree with him, is that crypto is not covered by the wash sale rules as they're currently drafted. And if, if crypto continues to grow in, in widespread adoption, that'll change eventually. You know, there's a reason why the wash sale rules exist. It's to prevent you from harvesting tax losses, when you have positions that have dropped in value, you could just sell it, trigger the tax loss, which will offset your other gains for the year. And then you buy back the position again. And your investment position has not changed, yet you have this favorable loss uh, that can offset other sources of, of gains on your tax return. So that's what the wash sale rule is trying to prevent. I'll point out one thing, you know, just uh, from the law standpoint, there's this stick the IRS keeps in its back pocket uh, called the Economic Substance Doctrine. And it says that any transaction that lacks economic substance apart from the tax benefit can essentially be disregarded by the IRS. So when, I, when I'm talking to clients about wash sale rules, I caution them. Because yes, in theory, you could have a position that goes negative. You could sell it to trigger the tax loss and then buy it right back again a moment later. And in theory, the wash sale rule, or, or specifically the wash sale rule, would not apply. However, that type of transaction is at risk under the economic substance doctrine because your position, your economic position has not changed. It's identical. And the only reason you did that transaction was for the tax benefit of harvesting the loss. So the IRS could disregard that. Right. But what I was asking was if you exit a poor-performing crypto asset, like, like, let's say, you know, XRP has dropped recently. So let's use that as an example. So let's say I trade that for something like ether that has gone up probably over the same time period, then, then I do actually benefit from both the loss as well as, but it, which, you know, uh, but then obviously I still have the gain. Yeah, you know, in that situation, I mean, your position has changed and, and that's what the wash sale rule is looking at. You know, you switched to a okay. different crypto. So that loss you incurred on Ripple, in effect, was real. You, you know, you changed positions, you realized the loss, you acquired Ether. Uh, your position has changed. And so not only does that transaction not fall within the wash sale rule simply because cryptos aren't securities, but also from an economic substance standpoint, that's a different, uh, you know, you've, you have economic substance in that transaction because you did actually, in fact, change your position from going from Ripple to Ether. So for 2018, what habits do you recommend crypto enthusiasts pick up at the beginning of the year so as not to make their taxes a year from now too painful? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm sure Jason hears the same thing. I, I talk to clients who, number one, are uh, aghast that every exchange of crypto to crypto is a taxable event. That that fact still doesn't seem to have permeated the crypto community. So one of the best things you can do, aside from simple things like keeping good records, is be a little more deliberate about the exchanges you have. Sometimes uh, users are just kind of swapping in between cryptos almost for fun, and they don't realize that they're really creating quite a mess for their tax return. And so when you say to keep good records, it would be what you paid for it, the date, or the amount you sold it for. What, what else would you want to log on such a spreadsheet? You know, I mean, that's the most important thing, the the date, the quantity, the coin you gave up, the coin you got back, the price. And 
you know, we've talked about the records that exchanges will keep for you, and, and generally those are fine to use. I mean, if you're doing a significant amount of trading, uh, practically speaking, you can't really manually keep those types of records anyways. You're going to have to rely on the exchange reports. But I do run into people all the time who have done trades through ShapeShift or other decentralized exchanges that don't provide transaction reports. And in that situation, that's where it falls on you to keep track of those. Um, same thing with making an ICO investment. Any of those exchanges that occur off of a, of a normal exchange platform, uh, you're going to have to keep manually in order to accurately calculate your tax return. I, I just want to expand on that a little bit because I, I think Tyson hit the nail on the head with uh, be a little more deliberate. Uh, the number one issue that we have had with clients in the past is um, especially this past year, we have clients that say, I didn't know, I didn't keep any records, what do I do? And, and the short answer is, well, you're already out of compliance. There's not really anything you can do uh, except try and report something. And, you know, just being a little more deliberate about your activity, being aware of what you're doing and, and what is expected of you uh, under the law um, can go a long way to avoiding headaches in the future. And are things any easier or more streamlined for people if they use an LLC to trade? Uh, I don't think so. No. No, I don't think so either. And what do you recommend? Or are there any uh, either tax accounting software or any any other programs that you think people could use to help with this headache? Yeah, you know, the the big two that are out there right now are uh, Bitcoin.tax and Cointracking.info. And, and they're, they're tools that help you essentially conduct the calculations you need to do in order to figure out your capital gains with crypto. Uh, they'll run FIFO or LIFO or whatever basis method you choose in order to, to calculate your gains. Um, and I'm not aware of any others. I think that from, you know, they seem to work fine from what I hear. I can't, you know, personally vouch for either, but, um, those are definitely the most too popular. I don't know if Jason knows of any others. Uh, those probably are the two that are in the widest use. There probably are others, but th those are the two that we use and, uh, we found that they work very well. And so I, it sounds to me like obviously regulation in this area has not been set. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, clarifications to be made. Um, I've heard about this cryptocurrency fairness and taxation act. And I wanted to, uh, first, you know, have you describe what that is and whether or not you think it's a good idea, but then also, um, describe whether or not you think there are any other countries out there that have taken either a much more progressive or conservative stance on crypto taxes and whether or not there are any policies that you see are being instituted abroad that you think we should be adopting here in the U.S. Was that the bill that came up last year? Um, and I don't think yeah. anything happened with it, correct? Yeah. Uh, I love talking about the Cryptocurrency Tax Fairness Act because it's just it, it, it's just such a bizarre bill. If, if you look at it, essentially what, what the bill said was that uh, transactions with a gain of, of less than, I think it was $200, uh, uh, would be exempt from tech. Okay, $600 would, would be exempt from taxation. And so th this would uh, basically engineer a loophole for, for anyone who could write a script that would ensure that uh, no lot of coins ever had a gain of more than $600. To just never pay taxes ever. And uh, I, I think the idea was uh, to kind of promote virtual currencies as a, a means of exchange uh, so that you could reasonably go and pay for a cup of coffee or whatever without having to report that. It's never going to become law because it's it's just 
it's just too easy to exploit in a way that that makes virtual currencies untaxable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And are you seeing anything happening abroad that you think would be maybe a, a way for us to go here in the U.S.? You know, we have a, a potential solution to this issue, and it's the way that taxes are done for foreign currency exchange. Foreign currency, if you trade it as an investment, is taxable, capital gains. If you use it in a personal use transaction, um, I believe the threshold is $200 of gain. Uh, anything less than $200 is not taxable and not reportable. And that's why you can go on vacation to Europe uh, and use euros to buy a cup of coffee and not you know, have any concern about gain or loss. And even if you come back to the US and, and sell your euros back at the bank, you don't have to worry about gain or loss. And so that's what we need. We need, a, I don't, I don't think we need necessarily to treat virtual currency um, as currency, but we at least need to apply a similar tax regime where you have this exception for personal use transactions, which is much narrower than, than the, the bill that was proposed last year. And I think would adequately address the issue that Jason uh, correctly brought up that if it's just a flat dollar exemption, there's too much opportunity for manipulation of that. I think the problem with that, though, is it's it's not really clear that that the use case for virtual currency as as a replacement for fiat that that's really expanding. Um, I mean, I've been in the space for close to five years. I think Tyson, you've been around uh, just as long as I have, if not a little longer. And um, the kind of golden age of that was 2013, 2014, when it was cheap to transact in uh, in virtual currency and specifically Bitcoin. And uh, it kind of seemed like that the number of merchants that were accepting it was increasing. And uh, we've seen a lot of pullback in the last several years from that. So um, I don't think that there's this vast community of people out there that's just uh, waiting on the edge of their seat to, you know, for the day when they can use Bitcoin to pay for a cup of coffee every single day. Um, if, if there was, then, then they seem to have evaporated over time. Interesting. Yeah. And if I can point out one thing, and maybe it's a little tangential, but um, cryptocurrency right now, as we've shown by just discussing the tax elements, is outside the existing regulatory and legal framework, and it doesn't fit well within any of the current rules. And I'm sort of surprised at this point that we haven't seen more effort in the community to put forward a, a lobbying effort in Congress in order to get things like a personal use exemption or, or other clarification on points related to the regulation of cryptocurrency to, to make a better effort as far as lobbying goes to make those things happen. Um, and, and maybe I've just overlooked it, but as far as I can tell, there's not a very concentrated effort on that front. And, and at this point now in 2018, I think it's safe to say crypto is probably here to stay at this point. And so now maybe it's the time to really start making an effort to get the legislation that we need to absolve a lot of these issues that are, are making the use and, uh, and adoption of cryptocurrency difficult. Well, maybe that's something that Coin Center, one of the advocacy groups, can work on. For listeners who have not heard that episode with Coin Center from season two, uh, or maybe it was season one, actually, they were just amazing and really interesting. And we got into all kinds of interesting discussion around ICOs and stuff like that. Um, so to wrap up, what is the number one biggest takeaway that you'd like listeners to know about crypto and taxes? Um, well, I would say that the the most important thing to remember is that Every exchange is taxable. 
And that means that you have a burden as a taxpayer to keep track of your activity with crypto. And you can rely on exchanges to a degree, you know, assuming they don't go under to, to report to you your activity. But at the end of the day, the obligation is on you. And so that's an important duty that you need to make sure you're meeting. And that would Im- imply keeping records of, of exchanges and trades that happen off of uh, exchanges and, and just making sure that you're able to comply uh, adequately with your tax reporting requirement. And, and to put, a, I guess, a, a more positive spin on, on the lawyer's comments, this is a really exciting time, I, I think, for virtual currency. And for me, at least, it's been fun to see how many clients have, have ch- really changed their lives over the past five years and, and specifically in the past year. I mean, I, I have a client that uh, is like a, a checker at a grocery store and probably has never made more than $30,000 in his life and made a million dollars last year trading virtual currency. And that 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 is a, a life-changing event uh, for this guy. So, you know, with regard to tax, uh, there's no 100% tax rate. And even if you're in the top bracket um, this year, it'll be 37%. Uh, you still get to keep, uh, what, 63 cents out of every dollar that you make. Uh, it, it's too easy to just report uh, your taxes and, and pay what you owe um, and then and then keep the rest to, to try and duck it and, 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 and not meet your obligations. You're probably going to be found out, you know, and in the end, it's, it's going to mess it up for everybody. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I've been speaking with Tyson Cross and Jason Tyra. It's been fantastic having you both on as guests. Where can people get in touch with you or see more of your work? Um, I can be found at uh, BitcoinTaxSolutions.com. I'm on Twitter now. Uh, I'm new to Twitter, but my handle is Tyson P. Cross. And I'd, uh, I'd love to catch up with anybody who wants to discuss cryptocurrency taxation. And you can find me at TyraCPA.com. I'm also on Twitter at TyraCPA, though I am not so active. Great. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode on crypto and taxes. To learn more about Tyson and Jason and to find previous episodes of the show with other innovators in the blockchain and crypto space, check out my Forbes page, forbes.com slash sites slash Laura Shin. And also be sure to follow me on Twitter at Laura Shin. New episodes of Unchained come out every other Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, or subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Elaine Zelby and Fractal Recording. Thanks for listening.